Okay, good morning all of you. Okay, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word uh, once again today. And we pray that now you will speak to us through your word and by the Holy Spirit in us. And help us to live lives that bring glory to you. And that do not cause people to stumble, but that help them uh, to come to the way of salvation. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, do you enjoy Chinese New Year? Because, uh, you know, when I was a child, I used to look forward a lot to Chinese New Year. And I don't know what it's like now, but back then, you know, I really loved the holiday atmosphere. I loved staying up late, watching a lot of TV, you know, visiting people and having people come over. I loved the um, junk food, the lion dancers, and especially the ang pao's. Now, some of you might... Uh, Think of Chinese New Year as more of a time of tension, perhaps, or even anxiety. I'm not talking about those of you who have to give out ang pao's. I'm talking about people who come from non-Christian backgrounds. Because when they go back for Chinese New Year, they have to think about the, 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 um, the dilemma of, you know, should I eat the chicken that has been sacrificed on the family altar? Should I risk open confrontation with my family members? Uh, and or should I just kind of quietly eat it and not make a big fuss over it so that you know they because it doesn't really matter anyway so that they won't get offended. Now this is the issue that the Corinthians also uh, were facing. They faced a very very similar issue because in their society cultures in their culture idols were just everywhere. So people would used to um, celebrate social occasions, celebrate family occasions at the temples of Greek gods and the, the temples usually had dining rooms attached and what they did there was you know if they uh, if they had a child birth then they would throw a party in celebration at the temple or perhaps uh, coming of age of a teenager or even a funeral things like that they would hold it at the temple see social occasions dinners were held in temples these were places where people did their networking these were places where you know they sealed all their business deals and if you wanted to be prominent in society, you had to go to the temple. You couldn't avoid it because if you stopped going there, people would think that you were a social misfit and you would never impress, you know, and you would never be accepted by the people who really mattered in society. Now, Paul deals with this question in 1 Corinthians from chapters 8 to 10. And we looked last week at chapter 8. Now, uh, to put it in a nutshell, basically, chapter 8 says, don't eat at idol temples because it could be unloving to your weaker brother or sister. So some of the Corinthian Christians argued, well, since idols are nothing, then food offered to idols is also nothing. Then I might as well just eat, right? What's the big deal about it? But Paul says, well, some people really believe that idols exist. And therefore, if you eat, you will lead them to think that you are worshipping idols and that it's okay for a Christian to worship idols. And then in chapter 9, Paul tells the Corinthians, Look at my example. You know, when I came to preach to you in Corinth, I didn't take any money from you guys. I have the right as an apostle to take a salary from you, but I did not do that because I wanted your good. I didn't want you to think that the gospel comes with a price tag. So I refrained, I, I voluntarily gave up my right. And this is how I, Paul, want you to behave. You see, I make the gospel as acceptable to any as acceptable to everyone and I do whatever in my it is in my power 
to do that, and I want you to do the same for your weaker brothers and sisters. This is his argument in chapter 9. So he's still saying that uh, as a Christian, we must take into consideration the needs of, our, uh, of those people around us and not just think about our own rights and freedoms. Now, after two chapters of that, Paul still hasn't finished talking about this issue of food offered to idols. And he keeps going now in chapter 10. Okay, let's look at chapter 10. Verse 1, it begins by saying, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. Now you might wonder, how does this connect with chapter 9? Well, at the end of chapter 9, if you look at verse 24 to 27 of chapter 9, Paul basically says, you must be willing uh, your Christian life is like a race. It's like a running the Olympic race. You must be willing to sacrifice your desires and discipline yourself in order to win the race. That is, in order to achieve your goal of salvation. You must beat your body. You must fight yourself and fight against sin so that you can make it to the end. And so now in chapter 10, Paul says, tells us why we must be so disciplined in our Christian lives. He says, For... And the word for means because of the, this reason, for our forefathers were all under the cloud. That is, you must be disciplined in your Christian life because our forefathers were under the cloud and under the sea. Now, that still doesn't quite make sense. So we still have to think about what does he mean by that? Well, what he's really saying is, look at Israel as an example for how you should live the Christian life. Take them as an example. They were our forefathers. They were God's people, just like we are God's people now. And remember when God led them out of Egypt, God went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud, and God took them through the Red Sea. And why, why mention the, the cloud and the sea? What's the relevance of that? Well, Paul is pointing out that there is a parallel here with their Christian baptism. You see, they were under the water of the cloud, and they went through the water of the sea. And this was like a sort of baptism for them. This was, you know, God's cloud overshadowing them. Walking through the sea was like, in a sense, a baptism. So just as we are baptized, so were they also baptized. They were baptized into Moses, he says. And Moses was the head and leader of God's people then. And today we are baptized into Christ, who is our head and leader today. So the, the point that he's making is that they had the privilege of baptism just like you guys in Corinth have the privilege of baptism. When you were baptized, it symbolized that you joined into membership of God's people. And when the people of Israel were baptized, they joined into membership of God's people too. And not only that, Paul keeps, goes on to say that they were not just baptized, but they had spiritual food and drink. So what was this spiritual food and drink? Well, they had manna from heaven and they had water miraculously from a rock. So they had spiritual food, that is food that God gave to them, which physically and spiritually sustained them. And this food and drink came from a spiritual rock. It wasn't just the physical rock that provided the water. Ultimately, behind that rock stood Christ, who was the one who supplied all their needs. Christ was the spiritual rock who fed them and who made water flow from the rock for them. 
So what Paul is saying is, look, they had baptism, they were so privileged, just like you have baptism. They had spiritual food and drink, just like you have spiritual food and drink. You have the Lord's Supper, you have the bread and the cup. They had food and drink too. They didn't lose out to you guys. They were God's people. But why is Paul making this comparison between Israel and the church of Corinth? Then we need to look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now that is very shocking. Because these people of Israel, who were God's people, who received all of God's privileges, their bodies were scattered over the desert. And the people who were baptized into Moses, and who had spiritual food and drink from Christ, their corpses were strewn over the hot sand. See, if anyone should enter the promised land, surely it would be God's people who received God's promises. And yet, even though they had so much blessing, they didn't make it. So what is Paul saying here? This is a warning. This is an example for the Corinthians to take careful heed of. What does this have to do with them? Well, and what has it got to do with eating food at idols' temples? Well, in verse 6, Paul says, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. In other words, look at what happened to Israel. Don't think that the privileges that you have in Christ means that you can never fall. You know, don't be falsely confident that just because God has saved you, now you can do whatever you like and you can sin as much as you like and you can still get to the heavenly promised land. Don't think that way. Look at how Israel sinned against God in the desert and make sure that you avoid those sins. Now what are the sins that Israel committed? Paul lists them out. And I'll put them under three categories. Number one, idolatry. When Moses went up the mountain to take the commandments from God, what did the people of Israel do down below the mountain? Well, they were eating and drinking and playing, it says, or having fun. Now, it's not wrong to eat or drink or have fun, but they were doing it in honor of an idol, to worship the golden calf. And why does Paul mention the eating and drinking specifically, rather than the fact that they bowed down to the idol? The reason is because eating and drinking in honor of idols is the same thing as bowing down to idols. It is worshipping the idol. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. And number two, the people of Israel committed sexual immorality. Now, sexual immorality was also something that the Corinthians were very prone to doing. And Paul has already covered this problem in chapters 5 and 6. We looked at it sometime last year. I hope you can remember a little bit about that. And number three, Israel tested the Lord and grumbled against God. Now, God, the Lord Jesus Christ, sustained them in their time in the desert, supplied them with food from heaven, supplied them with water from the rock. And what did they say? What did they do? All they did was grumble and complain about how much they hated it. How is this relevant to the Corinthians? Well, perhaps they also were grumbling. Maybe they were saying, well, why do we have to 
you know, why is it so hard for us? Why do you have to be so inconvenient, so unfair for us to have to stop going to the temples? Don't you know that we're going to lose out on our business opportunities and things like that? Why do we have to restrict ourselves? Maybe they were complaining. The Israelites were a bit like spoiled children who kind of throw a tantrum and think that they can get with, away with anything. So I don't know whether you've ever gone to the toy section in the department store and there you have kids kind of throwing tantrums, you know, because their parents wouldn't buy them the latest thing. Well, some of these children get away with it or think they can get away with it because they, they know that their parents aren't going to punish them when they get home. But God is not like that. See, it say, that's why it says in verse 12, look at verse 12, it says, So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. In other words, don't be so overconfident that you are safe. And don't presume that everything is going well. Don't think that just because you call yourself a Christian, you can just live like you, as you please and you can still survive Judgment Day. That's exactly what the people of Israel did. They thought that because God had chosen them, God had saved them, they can just ignore God's commands. They could insult God to His face and God would still accept them. Well, they made a very serious mistake here. And their bodies ended up strewn over the desert. And in the same way, the Corinthians thought to themselves, well, it's asking too much of us to abstain from idle food at the temple. We would lose our reputation. We would lose our prestige. We would lose all our business opportunities. Why don't we just keep going to the temple and eating there. It's not a problem really. After all, we all know that idols are nothing is okay. But it's not okay. Because to sin against God defiantly and persistently and unrepentantly is a very, very serious thing. God takes it very seriously. See, our God is not a God to be trifled with. He's a holy God who judges His people. He did not spare His people in the past and He will not spare us if we continue in sin and refuse to repent. However, God's last word here is not a word of warning but a word of reassurance. God promises you and I that we can. He will enable us to endure temptation. He will give us the strength to do it. So if you look at verse 13, God says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now there are three reassurances here. The first one is whatever we go through is not unique to us. We should expect to go through testing or temptation in our lives, because that is the common condition of all human beings. Now the, the Greek word here for temptation can mean either testing or temptation. It, it doesn't distinguish between the two. So to be human is to undergo testing and temptation or trials. To be human, you know, other people go through the same things like we go through. And other people have survived the tests and temptations that we go through. And that should give us encouragement to persevere in our hardship. Our second reassurance is that God never puts us through something that is impossible for us to bear. See, our God is faithful and we can trust Him. 
God knows our limitations. Now that doesn't mean that He only gives us the easy trials. No, He can put you through a very hard one. But that's because He knows that you can go through it. Even if you think that you can't. See, no matter how hard our trials are, we can rest assured that God knows that we can bear up under it. We can take it. And the third reassurance is that God will give us the strength to endure. Now, if you look at verse 13, it says that God will provide a way out. Now, that seems to be saying that God will remove the temptation from us and life will go back to being normal again. But is that really saying that? Well, not necessarily. Because if you look at the end of the verse, it says He will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So it's not saying that God will remove the test necessarily. Yes, He may, but maybe He won't. But what He will do is He will give you the strength to endure the test, to stand up under the load and not crumple. That is what God promises to do. Yes, the Corinthians were in a very difficult situation, but they must remember that trials and temptations are to be expected. And these things are not impossible to bear. And God is faithful. He will give them the ability to endure it. So they must keep trusting in God and keep enduring temptation. And the same goes for us today. The Corinthians' temptation was to commit idolatry. And what about us? They wanted to eat food at idols' temples. And perhaps some of us are tempted to participate in similar things like that. Or maybe if you are not tempted to idolatry in temples, maybe you are tempted to idolatry in other forms. For example, money and things are one of the biggest idols that we have today. Are we tempted to turn away from God to chase those things? That is also idolatry. Or maybe you are tempted to sexual immorality like the people of Israel like the people of Corinth. Maybe you think to yourself, it's okay for me to sleep with this other person who, is not, who I'm not married to because, you know, uh, we love each other. Or maybe you think, I'm not hurting anyone by looking at pornography on the internet. But God says, don't do it because sexual immorality will lead to God's judgment. There are consequences. Or perhaps your temptation is to grumble and test God, like the people of Israel. Now, what is testing God? Testing God means testing God's patience, challenging God to prove Himself, provoking God to anger. Grumbling against God. Now, what I want to say is grumbling is not the same thing as complaining necessarily. Because we see many godly people in the Bible who did complain against God. They were very honest with God and they told God, God, I don't understand why I'm going through this. I don't understand why you've put me through this. Think of people like Job or Jeremiah or Habakkuk or a lot of the Psalms that we read. But the thing about these people, even though they complained, they never gave up trusting God. They questioned God because they couldn't understand why things were happening, but they never stopped believing in Him. But grumbling is different. Grumbling is not trusting in God. Grumbling is complaining because we don't trust God. 
because we no longer believe in His word. That is grumbling. That's what the people of Israel were doing. They just ignored all the things that God did for them and they turned that into proof that God did not care for them. So when God gave them um, manna and water, all they said was, we hate this stuff. Can't you give us other stuff? And when they saw how God rescued them powerfully from Egypt by a series of miracles, they said, God, why did you bring us out into the desert to kill us? And when they saw the promised land, how wonderful and beautiful it was, they said, but there are giants in there which will kill us. We don't want to go in. So no matter what God did for them, they just didn't trust Him. They just didn't believe. They hardened their hearts and they turned their backs in unbelief. That is grumbling. So do you grumble and test God? Maybe you think that you are right to blame God. Maybe you think that, well, what did I do to deserve this health trouble or this family situation or this problem at work? You know, you, you might want to murmur against God and bicker against God and accuse Him of not caring about you. And you say, to th- you say things like, well, why does God hate me so much? Or maybe you, you say, you know, God, I, I, won't, I won't believe that you love me unless you do this or you do that for me. Then I will believe in you. Well, that is an attitude of testing God. So if you have this attitude, please repent because that is a great sin. Turn away from your unbelief and turn to trusting in God's goodness again. Now, are we standing firm in our temptations, in our tests and not falling? If you think that you are so firm that you will never fall, that is when you are most likely to fall into sin. But if you take sin seriously, repent of sin, trust God for strength to overcome temptation, then God's promise will not fail you and He will give you the strength to endure all trials and temptations day after day. So keep trusting in God. Now in verses 1 to 13 that we've looked at, the main point was that God's people in the past committed idolatry and therefore they faced judgment. They committed idolatry and sexual immorality and grumbling. And now Paul focuses on the first of those three sins, the idolatry. Because that is the topic that he is discussing in chapters 8 to 10. And he wants to apply this lesson from Israel to the church in Corinth. And so his conclusion for them is in verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. But some of the Corinthians were not satisfied with this answer. They say, well, just because I go to the temple doesn't mean I'm worshipping the idol there. I'm just going there to have a meal, you know, just like a McDonald's. So eating the food there doesn't mean I'm worshipping the idol. As long as in my heart I know that I'm not worshipping the idol, that should be fine. I, I can eat. See, idols are nothing, and therefore the food offered to idols is nothing. What is Paul's response to that? Well, he doesn't respond straight away. Instead, he goes on to make another comparison here. Look at verse 16 and following. Paul says, When you come to church and you gather together for the Lord's Supper, what is the meaning of eating the bread and drinking the cup? When you drink the cup, you indicate that you participate in the blood of Christ. You show by your drinking 
that you have a share in Christ's death. You are identifying yourself with Christ in His death. And when you take the bread, when you eat the communion bread, you are saying that you participate in the body of Christ. You are showing that you have died with Christ and in Christ. And not only that, look at verse 17. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. The Lord's Supper shows that you are also a part of one another, not just participating in Christ, but participating with one another in Christ. So when you eat the one bread together as a church, you show that you all belong to one body, the body of Christ. So eating and drinking here is not just any eating and drinking. Eating and drinking has an underlying spiritual significance. So you can't separate the eating and drinking from its spiritual meaning. You can't separate the eating and drinking from the worship. So in eating the bread and drinking the cup in communion, you know, you can't say, I'm only eating and drinking, I'm not really honouring Christ. This has got nothing to do with Christ. No, you can't say that, because the eating and the drinking has a spiritual significance. And the eating and drinking means that you honour Christ, and that you identify yourself with Christ, and you participate with Christ. Now the Lord's Supper is something... Uh, some, means something not because of the bread and the cup that we eat and drink. It's not because somehow it has magically transformed into magical bread with supernatural properties. No, these things are still bread and juice. The significance of the eating and drinking does not lie in the food that you eat and drink, but it lies in the context of the communion service you are proclaiming in that context that you belong to Christ. Because after the service is over, then you can come and eat the bread and drink and it doesn't have the same meaning anymore because the context has changed. So therefore, if you go to the idol's temple and you eat there, you can't just say, oh, this is just eating and drinking. I wasn't actually worshipping the idol. You can't do that. Don't you know that the food there is honoured, is dedicated to the honour of the idol? It's not because the food has been magically contaminated or defiled by being used in the pagan rite. No, the food is still the same as it was before it was offered to the idol. The problem is that eating in that context, that idol worship context, means that you are worshipping the idol too. And you are participating in that worship. So, it's not the food that is the problem. It's the eating of that food in that context that is the problem. But what about chapter 8, verse 4, when Paul said idols are nothing? Paul said idol is not even real. So what is the problem then with eating the food offered to idols? We're coming back to chapter 10. Let's look at verses 19 to 20. Paul says, yes, it's true that the idol is nothing. It's just a block of wood or stone. It's not the real God at all. And it's also true that the food offered to idols has not been changed, is not affected by being offered. The idol itself is nothing. But however, there are spiritual beings standing behind those idols. Behind those idols are demons. And when you sacrifice food to those idols, you are offering them to the demons. And so if you eat the food offered 
to idols, it means you are participating with demons. It means that you have a share in them. You belong to them. You honour them. Now imagine a man who says that he's faithful to his wife, but secretly he's having an affair with another woman. And he says to his wife, Oh, the fact I'm sleeping with her doesn't mean anything. It's just a physical action. It has no underlying meaning. It doesn't mean I'm being unfaithful to you. What do you think his wife would say? Would she accept that explanation? Of course not. Because the physical action cannot be separated from its meaning. When this man sleeps with the other woman, it means that he is giving her the exclusive love and loyalty that belongs to his wife alone. Therefore, eating idol food in the context of pagan religious rituals is unthinkable for a Christian. Here you are on Sunday morning, on a communion Sunday, eating the bread, drinking the cup, signifying that you share in Christ, you belong to Christ. Then the same evening you go to the temple and you eat food dedicated to idols, meaning that you have a share in the demons, you have a part with them. How can you do that? and escape the Lord's judgment. Paul is saying, are you stronger than the Lord Jesus? Are you trying to challenge him to see whether he's going to punish you for betraying him? So let us not be unfaithful to our Lord. See, we must never compromise our loyalty and our allegiance to Christ. It's not just a matter of eating and drinking. It's a matter of our loyalty to Christ. It's not right for us to eat and drink in pagan temples. It's not okay even if we don't actually bow down to the idols or we don't burn incense to them because the eating itself is enough. It's participating in the demon worship. Just like eating and drinking the Holy Communion in church means that you participate in Christ. Therefore, Paul says, flee from idolatry. Don't just assume it's okay for you to do anything that you like. Because some things are plainly wrong, whether or not you think they are wrong. So let us not provoke the Lord to jealousy and let us not bring God's judgment on ourselves by committing idolatry. So in the first half of chapter 10 that we've looked at, Paul has told the Corinthians that eating sacrificed food in an idol's temple is idolatry. Now that rules it out for Christians. But what about eating food that could have been sacrificed to idols but now taken into a different context? Now last week, uh, Pastor Poon told us the meat that the people bought in the market often had been used in sacrifice. They had been dedicated to idols before being put up for sale. Or if you went to a friend's house for dinner, maybe the food had been sacrificed before uh, being offered to you on a plate whether it was sacrificed at the temple or whether it was sacrificed in their own homes. So are we supposed to all avoid meat now just in case it has previously been sacrificed? Are we all supposed to become vegetarians just in case we eat something that's offered to an idol? Well, this is the situation now that Paul deals with from verse 23 onwards. In verse 23, Paul quotes a slogan that the Corinthians were very fond of. They often use this slogan to justify their actions. And it is, everything is permissible. Which means, I'm free to do whatever I like. I can choose, I have the right to act in any way I want. 
Now Paul responds by saying, yes, I know that you, know, you think everything is permissible, but let me tell you, not everything is beneficial, not everything is constructive. In other words, it's not enough to consider whether something is right or wrong. You've also got to consider how your actions will affect other people around you. It's not enough just to think about yourself, your own rights, your freedom. You must also think about others. Is it beneficial to them? Will it build them up? So that verse 24, Paul says, Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. See, we are all part of one another. We all belong together to Christ, and we belong to one another in the body of Christ. So out of love for one another, we must be willing to give up our rights and not insist on our own way for their sake, for the sake of others. Do what is for other people's good. Nobody should seek his own good but the good of others. And that is the principle that we should follow. Now how does this principle apply in the issue of eating food offered to idols? Well, Paul applies it in verse 25 to verse 30. And Paul says in verse 25, Whatever food you buy in the market is okay to eat, even if it has previously been sacrificed to an idol. And in verse 27, the same goes for eating food in private homes of unbelievers. Now these situations are different to eating idol food in the temple. In the temple, the eating is clearly a participation in idol worship. You cannot distinguish between the eating in the temple and the idol worship. But when you take the eating out of the temples and remove it from the religious ritual, then it does not necessarily have the meaning of worshipping idols. So in principle, it's okay to eat. When you buy meat in the market, your intention is you know, that you just want to have some meat to cook at home, right? And when you go to your friend's house for dinner, your intention is just to, well, just to have a bit of time together, social time together with your friend. Your intention is not to worship idols. That is just eating meat, full stop. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with idols. And so you don't have to try and find out whether the food had been offered or not. Because you, you don't need to know because it makes no difference in the end. Verse 26, Paul says, Paul actually quotes from the Old Testament and he says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That means all food is from God. Everything is given by God. And therefore it's fine to give thanks to God for the food and eat it. And verse 30 says the same thing. Paul says, if I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for. See, there's nothing wrong with eating in such circumstances. We are free to eat. However, in verse 28, if you are in an unbeliever's house for a meal, and somebody points out to you that the food has been sacrificed to an idol, then don't eat it for their sake. It doesn't matter if the person who pointed it out to you is a believer or an unbeliever. Because you don't want to give them the impression that it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols and you don't want to condone idolatry. So don't eat for their sake in order to point them away from idols to Christ. And so to sum up, chapter 10 deals with 
two different situations. The first one is when eating the food means honouring idols and because it is done in the context of pagan rites of worship. And this kind of eating has religious significance and is basically idolatry. And in fact, anything that honours idols is wrong for us, whether it's bowing down to the idol or holding joysticks to the idol or burning papers or incense, offering them food and eating the food that has been offered to them. We must not participate in such things because that would be to sin against God and bring His judgment on us. But then the second situation concerns food that was previously used in idol worship that is now taken out of the idol worship context and put in a neutral context. And in this situation, there is no more link to idol worship. The food remains unchanged, is not affected by the, idol, uh, by the fact that it had been offered. So the context is no longer a religious context. It's like going to the market to buy meat or going to your friend's house to have dinner. So in, in these situations, Paul says, it is okay to eat. The food is still food from God. And whatever was done to the meat in the past doesn't matter. It doesn't affect the food at all. However, there is one more thing to consider. If somebody points out to you that the food had been offered, then don't eat it. Even if it's actually okay for you to eat it, don't eat it for their sake. In order not to stumble them, so that, you, so that they will not misunderstand and think that it's okay for them to commit idolatry. Now the difficulty for us in Chinese culture is that food is offered to idols not just in the temples but often in private homes. So about food offered at home, such as during Chinese New Year, does it have a religious meaning or is it just a social occasion? That is a difficult question. And one thing you can do is ask yourself, those people who are eating this food, what meaning does it have for them? You know, if in their mind they eat it partly to honour the thing on the altar, then the eating has a religious significance. If so, then you must not eat in order to maintain your loyalty to Christ. But you can do it in a, in a loving and gentle way, not in a harsh and judgmental way. Now, I can't tell you what is right or wrong to do in every different context that you could possibly encounter. But God has given us two big principles for deciding on all our actions. And we can summarize the message of the whole chapter 10 in two main principles. And these two principles are in verse 31 to the end of the chapter. The first principle is in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Everything must be done for God's glory. See, our primary concern in life is to uphold God's honour and glory. And this rules out idolatry and this rules out all other sin. But even if something is not sinful in itself, another principle still applies. And this is the second principle in verse 32 onwards. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks or the Church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. See, everything should be done 
for the eternal good of others, whether they are Christians or non-Christians. And if they are non-Christians, our aim must be to do everything that we can to lead them to salvation. And the first step in that is to dissociate ourselves from the, uh, the worship of idols. And if they are Christians, our aim must be to maintain their faith in Christ and not to do anything that encourages them to sin. Now, I know that some of you come from non-Christian families and dealing with idol food and with pagan practices may be a very real issue for you. Now, I haven't had to face this personally. The closest thing for me, in my experience, is um, um, what happened to an aunt of mine in Taiwan. See, she was married to a Christian and uh, she was a professing Christian. But her husband died and uh, eventually the pressure in Taiwanese society was so strong for her to conform to idol worship, for her to worship the gods and the ancestors, that she gave in in the end. And for many years now, she has stopped being a Christian. Now sometimes it's not easy to stay exclusively devoted to Christ. We may encounter a lot of misunderstanding from family, a lot of prejudice, and the pressure is very strong on us to compromise a bit here and there. But let me urge all of you not to compromise your loyalty to Christ. Don't succumb to idolatry, but trust in God's strength to overcome temptation. Do everything for the glory of God and for the good of many, so that they may be saved. And may God give us the strength to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you rescued us from our bondage to idols and turned us to serve you, the only true and living God. Indeed, there is no other name under heaven given to men and women by which we must be saved except the name of Christ. Thank you for the great privilege of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Help us to cling on to Christ and not be tempted to turn back to idols. Please enable us to heed your warnings and live by your promises. Some of us may particularly experience pressure to conform and compromise with idolatry. And please give those of us strength to resist and wisdom to do it in a loving and winsome manner. And help all of us to live to your glory and be willing to give up our rights for the good of others, that we may not stumble anyone but lead them to salvation. Strengthen us to remain faithful to Christ to the very end of our lives, that we may stand before you unashamed on the last day and be welcomed into your heavenly kingdom. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.